And just a few verses I want to look at this morning, but they're, they're powerful verses. I'm going to read to you uh, out of John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. I'm going to read out of the New American Standard and probably look at the New King James. And I've got an ESV here somewhere, but I haven't opened it yet. But anyway, um, it's the Feast of Tabernacle. The Feast of Tabernacle was a time where it was a compulsory feast for the males of Israel for them to come and present themselves to the Lord. So it was a holy convocation. And for the week they would live in booths. It's also known as the Feast of Booths. And they would live in these, these kind of lean-to type of booths that they would, uh, they would live in for the week. So in a sense they would go camping for a week, but without the trailer, Okay but they would go camping, but without the RV, all right? Um, and it was to commemorate God's provision through the wilderness. And to me, that's fascinating in and of itself because the wilderness wanderings were really twofold. It was a purging of the nation of Israel. Everyone 20 and older were not able to go into the promised land. But it was also within the realm of that wandering in the wilderness that God showed himself strong on behalf of the nation of Israel over and over and over again. Providing water from the rock, two examples that, I, that I'm thinking about the top of my head that this particular passage, I believe, even addresses. And yet in reality particularly for us as the church, it addresses even so much more. It tells us in verse 37, Now on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this, he said, in reference to the Spirit. Now, verse 39 is commentary, all right? John is throwing this in after the fact. But he says, but this he spoke, that is, Jesus said in reference to the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet get given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. And Lord, that you would make your word alive in our life. Make your word alive in our hearts. Lord, that you would bless your word to our hearts. That we would consider the ministry of the living water. The Holy Spirit. And that you would do that work in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. It's on the last day of the feast. Now, Tabernacles was seven days long, plus one. And you, you see that also with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You had the plus one of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that began not at the end, but at the beginning, which was known as what? You guys know this, Passover. Passover, and then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. At the time of Jesus, they referred to the entire eight-day period as Passover. In tabernacles, 
you had seven days of tabernacles and then there was an additional day. A day mainly for reflection. And what was happening here, the context of Jesus here speaking is, is that the priests would go to the pool of Siloam once every day in the morning for six days. And, and they, would, they would carry a picture, a picture of, gold, uh, 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 of water, uh, basically a picture made out of gold, uh, full of water, and they would bring it to the temple, and they would take it to the altar, and, and then they would, uh, as they were bringing it back in, they would blow the shofars, you know, the, the, the ram's horn, and, and they would be singing psalms of praise and thanksgiving, uh, and they were thanking God. Tabernacles also had another meaning. They were thanking God for the harvest. So they were singing the psalms of Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. For six days, this, this procession took place every morning. And then on the seventh day, they did it seven times. Which I find, that must have been a very busy morning. It remind you of something? A place called Jericho, by any chance? But anyway, I'll let you look into that. On the eighth day, they did not do the procession. But the eighth day was a time of solemn prayer and reflection because they were also preparing their hearts for the upcoming year. And, and so this great day of the feast was Probably the seventh day. There, I read a whole lot of stuff that might not even interest you, interest you to one bit about the different arguments about what day this was. We know that John tells us it's the last day, the great, uh, the great day of the feast, where they would have done this, I, and for my money, I think it's the seventh day. And they did this procession seven times, and then they would pour the water out on the altar, or at the base of the altar from the pool of Siloam. And Jesus seizes that opportunity, and it says that he cries out. It's an interesting word. Uh, John uses it a few times. He uses it of John the Baptist in chapter 1. He uses it here in, in John 7, and we'll use it again in John, uh, earlier. He used it in John 7, 28, and we'll use it again. In John 12, uh, 44. But it, what it refers to that he's making a solemn proclamation of truth concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of those verily, verily, I say unto you moments, if you will. He's trying to get everybody's attention. Again, I, I, I've told you guys this story before. We, I grew up in this this. Uh, this uh, Baptist church and it was it was wider than this and the ceilings were at least that high at the very top and the walls were lath and plaster you guys remember what lath and some of you older guys know what lath and plaster is see me later I'll explain it to you anyway so really hard walls and no air conditioning of course um, and I remember that when it got hot this deacon would come and the windows were tall and they had this hook that they would attach to the top of the windows and, and they would let them open outwards and they creaked and the chairs creaked. It was a noisy building, right? And the pastor, I remember this, he yelled and screamed. And when he wasn't yelling and screaming, he was screaming and yelling, all right? All right, so, and, and 
and he would just get red in the face and he would just yell and stuff and all this and, and 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 then he would start beating on the pulpit. You know what a pulpit is, right? So most of you know what a pulpit is. All right. I remember one time somebody asked me why you had a pulpit. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with this? Anyway, but he would, and the, he would hit that pulpit like he'd hit that drum, right? And he would hit it hard. And it was like hitting a kick drum, right? And I never understood why. You know, I'm young. I never understood why because, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm getting yelled at by my dad, you know, as I'm sitting there listening to this guy every Sunday just going nuts. I got the suit on and I'm sweating and all this. Anyway, and I pieced it together later I think he hit, the, he hit the pulpit because I think he was trying to wake people up. Now, who could sleep through that? I couldn't. But he would yell and he would get your attention, all right? He had your attention, whether you wanted to give it to him or not, he had your attention. It's the same idea here that Jesus, he cries out with a loud voice, I'm not going to dramatize it for you any more than I just did, all right? But he cries out because he has a very solemn proclamation of truth that he wants to give out. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, what's interesting about that proclamation is I, I read that and I have a lot of questions. One is, did he say anything else? If he did, John didn't record it. Is that a little vague? Yes and no. We're not sure what Old Testament reference he may have been referring to here. You have, and I, and I talked about it earlier, you have the water flowing from the rock in Exodus and, and it's reflected upon in the, in the Psalms, Psalm 105, verse 40 through 41. And, and this water flowing from the rock was, was a, a, a God's provision. And this, it even t the scripture even tells us that the water actually followed them as they wandered through the wilderness. And, and Moses was told to strike the rock the first time. The second time he was told to speak to the rock, but he was in a bad mood. So what did he do? He thought, well, striking the rock worked last time, so let's do it again. And so he disobeyed God. He struck the rock, and what happened? Water came out. And God then said to Moses, uh, we need to talk. It was because of that disobedience that he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. Imagine that, that God was that severe with the one whom he spoke to as a friend, the one whom he spoke to face to face in the tent of meeting. But the water is symbolic of God's provision. It's, it's symbolic in several different chapters in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, verses 1 through 12 which is touched on again in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and chapter 22. Interestingly enough, too, the, the Jews understood this because in the book of Zechariah, we're going to turn to that one real quick. I'm just, just to, because I'll, I'll misquote it terribly if I try to. But in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14,
In verse 16 it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who was left in all of Jerusalem, uh, uh, excuse me, it come to pass that everyone who was left of all the nations, that's what I meant to say, which came against Jerusalem, notice that, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now figure that one out. That's a difficult one. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Now, I believe the context here is future. I think he's talking in uh, the, really uh, the millennium, what would be known as the millennium. But if they do not come and worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them will be no rain. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain, and they shall receive the plague of which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was considered, and they understood Zechariah at that time. And the nations of the world, if they do not come and keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they will receive no rain. So that was also on the minds of even the Jews at the time of Jesus. That it was very, very important to keep this feast and to pray for. Uh, I don't have time to really get into this fully, but I read a lot about this. Particularly the Pharisees saw this as very important to pray for the rain for the next year. Which I think is a good thing. I mean, how many do you guys, how, much, how many of you pray for rain? How many of you pray for snow? Of course, snow. Some of you pray for snow. Um, the, but, but it's part of God's provision for us. And so, we're not sure really of the Old Testament background in this. But it's interesting, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44, that's another one worth turning to this morning, beginning with the first verse. Isaiah 44. It says, Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, verse 1, and Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jerusalem, Jeshurun, that is. It's another name for Jerusalem, by the way. Whom I have chosen, it, verse 3, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And they will spring up among the grass like the willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write his name on his hand, the Lord's. The name himself by the name of Israel. So the Lord here is speaking to Israel. I think 
also speaking to all of his people, where he says he will pour out water on those who are thirsty. He will pour out water on those who are thirsty, and I will pour um, my spirit on your descendants. So he is equating this idea, this, this idea of water being the metaphor, the thirst of water, which we all have from time to time, right? There's nothing like a good cold glass of water, is there? I don't think anything beats a good cold glass of water when you're really thirsty, except for maybe the second one, when you're really, really thirsty. God is using that illustration to show us of his desire to pour out the living water, the Holy Spirit, upon those who are thirsty. What is tragic, what is tragic in, in Israel's history, and let me see if I can find it here real fast, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. There's that phrase again. And have hewn, or dug out, themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Interesting, in, in the Greek language this, with this word for living water, it, it refers to this idea uh, of, of water that is full of vitality, water that is considered lively, water that is considered running. Running water, clean, pure, running water in a spring as compared to water that stagnates when it's put into a cistern and is put into a holding tank. And Israel, Judah, actually, because Jeremiah was the prophet to Judah, they forsook God, the fountain of living waters. And instead, they dug out cisterns. That'll hold water, supposedly, although it'll stagnate but cisterns that were broken that could hold no water. I think, I'm, I wasn't even prepared to go in this direction, but I'm sensing it, but I don't want to go too deeply in it. What are, where are we digging? And what are we digging for? What are we pursuing? That great theologian, Bruce Springsteen, right, said, everybody has got a hungry heart. And by default, everybody also is thirsty. Okay, he didn't say that, but that's what I took from that song. <laughs> everybody is hungry. Everybody is thirsty. Everybody. What do we do to quench that thirst? A better question would be, to whom do we go to to quench that thirst? 
Because God here is saying, I will pour out water on him who is thirsty. Isaiah 44. And floods on the dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. See, in verse 39, God, uh, God is in, uh, inspiring John to tell us that Jesus is foreshadowing, he, he is prophesying that that time where the spirit would be given We're good. Jesus is prophesying the time where the Spirit would be given, really anticipating, I believe, Isaiah 44, that pouring out of God's Spirit and the blessing that God desires to give with that. And so... Jesus, it tells us here that uh, Jesus tells us that uh, was referring to the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That is, Jesus had not yet died on the cross. Jesus had not yet been put in the grave. He had not yet resurrected from the dead, and then he had not yet ascended. But when he did all those things, he leaves with a promise. Acts chapter 1 that he would give them the Holy Spirit. Actually, you see the giving of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John where he breathes upon them and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, and sometimes when I talk about the Holy Spirit, I think some of you are going to get all worried. Maybe you're not. Maybe you've gotten past that. But nobody, I don't think anybody's going to swing in the aisles because those chandeliers are too high anyway to do it. But... The Holy Spirit is the one whom empowers us. The Sp Holy Spirit is the primary person within the Godhead today that deals with humanity. He actually, when we are born again of the Spirit, John chapter 3, he dwells in us. And we're, we're going to eventually get to that point where we're... Uh, when, when Jesus is talking in chapters 14 through chapter 16, where he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and, and he has five different sayings. I'm not going to mention them to you this morning, but he has five different sayings where he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. But two of those things, is it, well, three of those things, he's our teacher, he's the one who empowers us, and Jesus also uses the term comforter, which could, could also be translated as a counselor. Teaching and counseling are separate, but they're almost, they're very similar. And the Holy Spirit is given. Look at the context here again. The Holy Spirit is given to those who are thirsty. The Holy Spirit is not given to those who are not thirsty. Now, I think by implication what this is talking about also is, is that we won't come to Christ unless we're thirsty. 
But in the life of a Christian, someone who is born again of the Spirit, we can, and sometimes we do, find other means to quench that thirst. And I'm not going to name them. You already know them. Because I think the Spirit is, is telling you about these things. But do we come to God the Holy Spirit to quench that thirst? Do you ever get thirsty to begin with? Christian. I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians. Yes, we've been given the Holy Spirit. That's really clear here in this passage. But what do you do with him? The one who dwells inside you. What do you do with the Holy Spirit? It's interesting to me that Paul gives us two particular warnings concerning the Holy Spirit. He says, do not grieve the Spirit, do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve him, do not quench him. And I think when we quench him, eventually we end up grieving him as well. The Spirit speaks to us, and I'm getting way ahead of myself in the Gospel of John and sharing this with you, but I think it's important. The Spirit speaks to us in a manner that is consistent with the written word. But let's also face it, there are certain things in our life that the written word does, did not cover. I've shared this with you guys many times. And in understanding and in discerning the particulars of your life. Lord, where is it that you want me to go? Lord, what is it that you want me to say? Lord, what is it that you want me to do? The third one is probably the easiest because if I want to know what God wants me to do, I can pretty much read it right here and, and get a pretty good idea. But then the particulars again. Do I do this? Whatever that is. Or do I do that? And how do you discern between two good choices? It's easy to discern between a good choice and a bad choice, isn't it? That's not hard. But how do you discern? Oh, let's make it even more fun because I love the Sears catalog illustration, right? How do you discern between good, better, or best? When you have three choices. What I have found in my own life physically that if I'm thirsty, I can't really make any kind of discernment other than where's the refrigerator and where's the ice and the water and the glass. I'm driven to go to the store. And it, it, it never used to be this way in the, living in the high desert for so long and being older, right? That, that doesn't help either. But there are, there are, I'll be working away, well, when I work, uh, I will be working away, and all of a sudden, I, it's like I hit that wall. It's like, I've got to absolutely stop right now and get a drink of water, right? Kind of hit that wall, you know? And really... 
everything else just kind of gets put off to the side just for a moment. But do we feel that way spiritually? Do we feel that way spiritually? Do we feel that way about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I think, I think those are really important questions for us to ask. And I think at times we all slip into this place where, no, we don't feel that way spiritually. Got, a, got it under control. Everything seems to be working okay. The problem with that is when we get into that place, it is possible that we are in a place that Jesus counseled the church in Ephesus to return to their first love. Because I think my first love is, yes, I'm in love with Jesus. Yes, I love Jesus. Jesus is such a great guy, right? Great God. Okay. All right. You get the idea. That's my first love. But how does that play out spiritually? How does that play out spiritually for you? Because I just expressed emotion, didn't I? Which only carries me so far. Oh, I just love Jesus. Jesus is so wonderful. And then I come across somebody who's a complete idiot, right? Now what do I do? I know people who, who they play this, I just love Jesus, and through that situation. And to me, that almost feels, there's feeling again, but that appears to be someone who's depending upon the power of their own flesh. Because when I'm encountering someone that I don't want to encounter, I need the power of the Holy Spirit to navigate it. Paul told the Ephesians, be, um, the Greek reads something like this, be continually being. I think it's in Ephesians 4. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that tells me a lot of things of which I don't have time to cover them this morning. I'm off the map and I'm using my notes. I wasn't planning on going here, but I think this is appropriate as well. It tells me of my dependency. See, if Jesus didn't hit the dependency of, on the Holy Spirit with using the illustration of being thirsty for living water, I don't know what does. But then Paul says, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that tells me that I have a dependency upon the Holy Spirit. If I'm going to navigate my life and do it in such a way that it honors Christ and furthers the kingdom of God. Now, if I don't care about honoring Christ or furthering the kingdom of God, then it doesn't matter. Really. But where your heart is, there your treasure will follow. And that's a great, 
that's a great passage for a lot of Baptists to try to get you to give more money to the church. That's what they do anyway, at least in the church that we grew up. The guy with, you know the guy with the yelling and screaming and the kick drum? Okay, I haven't gotten too far from him this morning. Anyway. But where's my heart? Where's your heart? Are we people submitted to the Spirit of God? I remember when I was young, man, I was so afraid that if I submitted to the Spirit of God, he's going to do something horrible in my life. And he was going to take all the fun out of my life. And he was going to take out the joy out of my life. And then when he was done doing all that, then he was going to make me a missionary and go to Africa. Right? I didn't want to go to Africa. I didn't want to be a missionary. I didn't want to be a pastor. But I learned, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept your word, the psalmist says. I learned that I needed to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And being dependent upon the Holy Spirit is actually a submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what it really is. You see, you, you, you never want to get too far from the Trinity on this, all right? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is being submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They're not two separate things. I won't even say your mileage will vary because if your mileage varies on that, I think you're not right. I think it's about being submitted to Christ and in being submitted to Christ, I'm willing to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because that is whom will quench my spiritual thirst. And if you haven't been thirsty for a while, I'm going to start praying that you become that way. Really. Because that just tells me that you're probably at a place where you just need more of the Holy Spirit in your life. We'll get to it again, John 14 through 16. I'm not going to uncover that this morning. But, but having more of the Holy Spirit in your life doesn't mean that you're weird. All right. I have seen things that have been. I'm going to contradict myself in a minute. All right. I've seen things and heard things from folks and I'm thinking, yeah, you're just weird. This isn't the Holy Spirit. You're just weird. However. Jesus said it really well. John three again. The wind blows where it wills. You cannot tell where it is coming. You cannot tell where it is going. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. And there have been some revivals, some outpourings. Yeah, I'm going to use Pentecostal terms. There have been some moves of the Holy Spirit of God that quite frankly were obvious that they were the Spirit of God and not of man. And they denied full comprehension and full understanding. And that freaks a lot of people out. It does. It freaks a lot of people out. 
But part of being filled with the Holy Spirit is also being submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Which again, does not translate into weirdness. But it can move into a sphere of really the unknown. I know that makes some of you uncomfortable even hearing that this morning. But there are just times, I believe, that God just desires to do a fresh work. And we need to be open to that. The Holy Spirit is the source of the living water, the running water, the fresh water, the moving water. That's what all these things, the word living means in, in uh, coming out of the Greek. You see, the thing is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up. God desires to quench your thirst and my thirst spiritually. In the book of Revelation, I, re I referred to it earlier without reading. I'm going to read to you out of two verses. Revelation 21, verse 6. It says, and, I, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, or it is finished if you must. But I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who's speaking here? Jesus is speaking here. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. What's he talking about? Is he talking about a fountain there in heaven? And he's got this ladle and he grabs a bunch and he looks, oh, there you are. He pours it down on you. Well, yes and no, but he's talking about the third person of the Trinity is who he's talking about. I, because he's already told us this in John 7. That's what he's talking about. John isn't just making this up on verse, in verse 39. Revelation twenty two seventeen and the spirit and the bride, the spirit... And the bride. Who's the bride? I believe the bride is, some people say the church, I believe the bride is all who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's my opinion. Your mileage will vary. But that's fine too. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Again, is there a big drinking fountain there in heaven? Everybody's lined up to get a drink? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And what is he really saying? You know, I'm huge on the, the triune God. He's saying, come and drink of him. 
He is saying, come and, and partake of him. It's, it's a relational calling. It, it's not just you run up to the fountain, you take a big drink, you wipe your mouth, and then away you go. It is a relational calling because Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also trusted. Who? Who's the him here? Jesus. In Jesus you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We believe in Jesus, and by doing so, the Holy Spirit seals us. I don't think he unseals us, by the way. Some people believe he, you get unsealed. I, I don't, I don't, that doesn't connect with this, what Paul is teaching here even well in, into the Ephesians. It's not even something that we necessarily ask for. We simply ask for Jesus to save us, and Jesus is like, hey, we've got another one over here. You know, seal them up. They're ours. They're thirsty. Seal them and quench their thirst. The thing about the Holy Spirit, and I don't know that I've even mentioned this. I'm going to finish up with this even though I've talked about this being a relational invitation. If you are the temple, 1 Corinthians, I believe, 6 or 7, if you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he dwells in you, his ministry to you is not only sealing you unto the day of redemption. I didn't include that part in Ephesians 1. Not only sealing you unto the day of redemption, but he's also there relationally with you. He's there to come alongside of you. That's the ministry of the counselor. Again, we'll see it later in the book of John. He's there to come alongside of you. He's there to, to, to minister to you in your good times, in your not-so-good times, in your horrible times. And I would even submit to you that he's even there when you don't want him to be there. Some of you really understand that. But he's there when you don't want him there. But the reality is, once you have drank of that living water, nothing, absolutely nothing else satisfies. So be ye continually being filled with the Holy Spirit.